when people say redirect funding or defund the police, however you want to phrase it, they're saying our current funding systems are broken and don't keep people safe. Cities and states and counties spend ginormous amounts of money on policing, and it's beginning to become clear that these strategies are not working very well. I would bet a lot of people don't think our budgets as they're currently construed reflect our values. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. It's like Econ 101 without all the BS. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm Jessen Farrell, and I'm senior vice president at Civic Ventures and a former state legislator. Pitchfork Economics is, of course, a podcast devoted to questions about economics. But today, for really obvious reasons, we're going to take a detour into the even more horrific world of uh, racism and police brutality and its connection, I suppose, to economics in some way. Yeah. And, you know, there is obviously a lot of unpacking to do around the protests that have happened over the last several days. They're the culmination of many, many years of decades of activism. But one of the things that is really apparent is that there are communities that are over-policed. And part of that is because we criminalize poverty. We criminalize things that are an outgrowth and a symptom of not just racism, but income inequality. And as a consequence, black and brown communities, which you know by design are suffering both economically, but are then also over-policed because of that relationship. Right. And the, you know, the economic consequences of this are really significant because cities and states and counties spend just ginormous amounts of money on policing and <laughs> courts and so on and so forth. And, you know, I think it, it's beginning to become clear that these strategies are not working very well. And in fact, in many ways, the police may be making the circumstances worse uh, or less safe, and it's certainly not economically efficient. And so that's a very interesting area to explore and very consequential to how we organize what we do as a society both, you know, to govern ourselves and to keep keep one another safe. Yeah, one of the things that's so striking about this particular moment and and these protests, they are very much about police brutality and black communities in particular saying no more. At the same time, one of the policy solutions that has emerged is around defunding police departments and and redirecting that funding towards other programs that help people thrive and be healthy. And that's one of the really interesting things about this moment is that the policy solution uh, that is being talked about and and addressed to a certain degree in in certain places like Minneapolis and and even here in Seattle uh, is fundamentally about budgets and economics and who pays and who benefits. And I think one of the broad messages is that Black and brown communities are not benefiting from these public expenditures and are, in fact, being greatly harmed. And this moment is certainly around uh, budgets and whether those budgets meet our community values. Right. And there's this really twisted way in, in which our economic 
uh, and political policies are intertwined and disadvantage folks, right? So you have this economic system, which massively disadvantages and exploits folks at the bottom. Then we spend a crap load of public funds to criminalize their lives on top of it. Yeah. And then penalize people for the rest of their lives for having been, you know, over-policed and, and part of the penal system in the first place, right? All the limits that people have on participating economically because of a felony charge, for example, in their past, all the ways we limit housing and access to jobs. And so, you know, on the face of it, this is an economic podcast and, you know, the news has been so much about these protests, but there's a very clear economic story and a story around who participates and who doesn't participate in decision-making and the share of wealth in our community, particularly as we have this criminal justice system that is so massive in certain parts of people's lives in our community. Yeah. Today, we are really excited to have King County Council Member Germai Zahilai talk to us about policies that he is advancing and supporting to fundamentally transform the police. And King County is uh, where Seattle is, and it is also the 12th most populated county in uh, the country. So we are really looking forward to hearing his perspective on what's been happening over the last several days. Hi, everyone. This is uh, Gurmai Zahalai. I'm a council member for King County District 2. So, Gurmai, why don't you start uh, with a little bit about your background and the path you took to becoming a King County council member? I guess if, if we go all the way back, my story starts before I was born. My parents are Ethiopian refugees. They left Ethiopia in the 1980s because there was a war happening. They crossed the border into Sudan, and that's where I and my brother were born. And once I turned three, we boarded a plane and crossed over the Atlantic Ocean into the U.S. And I was raised in South Seattle in public housing in South Seattle, went to public schools in South Seattle, proud graduate of Franklin High School, and uh, went off to California at Stanford for college by way of profession. I'm uh, an attorney. I went to uh, UPenn Law School. I started off by doing anti-poverty work, and then I interned at the White House for a bit. Then I practiced law in New York and uh, South Seattle, and I ran for public office because I saw all of the current policies and institutions that weren't working for families like mine in South Seattle. By the time I left Seattle and came back, South Seattle was a completely different place. It wasn't a place where all the hardworking people who had working class jobs, climbed the economic ladder and were able to buy houses and continue living in the communities where I was raised. It was a place where people were getting displaced and losing their homes and working harder and harder every day and getting less out of it. Young people weren't didn't have the kinds of opportunities that I would want them to have. So I just felt like having stronger regional policies that prioritize marginalized communities, giving them housing and you know, fighting for climate action and a better criminal justice system. Those are all things that I felt like I could affect that would, that I could build on the work of all the people who've been fighting for those things for so long. And that's why I ran. And it's really great to have you on the council. I mean, it's only been about six months 
and you're already emerging as one of the leading voices in this moment. And I'm wondering if you can describe what's been happening in Seattle, what your constituents' experiences have been, particularly in this last week, and maybe you can touch a little bit on uh, what happened on Saturday night. It's been a wild, wild six months. You know, it's not like we didn't have any problems before I got into office. We were dealing with a homelessness crisis, a climate crisis, a region where the wealthy have been getting wealthier and wealthier and the poor have been getting poorer and poorer. And I know uh, Nick and Justin, I know you've been big advocates on progressive taxation and closing that gap. And then you get into office thinking that those are the problems that we're going to address. And of course, it's just new crisis after new crisis after new crisis. It's been crazy. And, you know, there are some people who don't really see the connection between COVID-19 and what happened to George Floyd. I think those are two very similar dynamics. Those are generations of unjust and unsustainable policies impacting marginalized communities, black and brown communities, and playing out with death, death of a black individual, George Floyd, or death of countless black and brown people at the hands of a virus that disproportionately affects us. And so that's what I've been seeing play out, uh, uh, an unsustainable society and the masses that no longer want to live under these conditions and people are rising up. That's what played out on Capitol Hill on Saturday night. It was incredible and powerful to see. Set the scene for people who didn't see the live stream. It was very dramatic. Absolutely. I'll take you through, I'll take you through it through my, my own eyes. I was at a uh, I was celebrating a friend's birthday at, at their home, you know, masks on, physically distanced, don't, don't call me out. It was the first time where I was like, man, I'm finally going to do normal things. I was about to, you know, cut the cake. And then I get a call saying, yo, stuff is going down in Capitol Hill. Please uh, get get down here, bring as many elected officials as you can, uh, because things are escalating and we need people to de-escalate and, and bring peace so I got in my car and, and rushed over to Capitol Hill and I just see what felt like hundreds of people on one side and then police on the other side. But the dynamic was just so incredible. I mean, it, to see that many, what looked like to me, peaceful protesters, people calling for justice, people who are angry and demanding better, of course, uh, but at the same time, they were passing each out water to one another. They were passing out earplugs for one another because the police were using some uh, sound blast tactic. They were passing out sanitizer and masks to each other. It was really a bunch of people taking care of one another. I saw teenagers just uh, displaying a kind of brilliance that I didn't see when I was in high school, where they were able to articulate how several types of systems have, have been failing us in, in our country. And I interviewed them and I interviewed doctors and, and just heard what they've been saying. And then you look on the other side of the line, you know, I, I say that to provide contracts on, on one side, you see people taking care of one another. And on the, on the other side, I just see uh, what looks like a militarized police force, you know, uh, riot gear, shields, batons for beating people. You look on the tops of buildings and you see, uh, more officers on the tops of buildings. And I saw pictures later where there were what appeared to be assault rifles or s some kind of weapons that they had on the roof. 
And it's just uh, a site that will stick with me probably for the rest of my life because I see what the protesters have been saying and that is that our police forces are not the kinds of public safety systems that we want to see right now. You have been in dialogue with um, your constituents and folks from across our community about what to do about all of this. And you have sort of evolved, uh, I believe it is, uh, sort of five planks or pillars of policies that you pledge to support. Can you take us through what those are? Absolutely. So once the protests started a couple of weeks ago, at least this recent wave of protests, I got on Instagram and Facebook and asked the community, what kind of solutions do you want to see? Email us those because what we as elected officials need to do is channel this energy and momentum from the protests into concrete policy changes. And hundreds of people emailed us and we went through those and we created the five that we saw more most frequently. And they also happen to be five that are backed up by the data as reducing police violence. Those five that I have pledged to pursue and that I've been asking other elected officials to pursue as well are number one, demilitarize the police. Number two, further restrict use of excessive or deadly force by police. Number three, increase accountability and transparency in police union contracts in that negotiation process. Number four, give subpoena and other investigative powers to independent oversight boards. And number five, redirect police department funding to community-based alternatives. And number five is the one that we have been hearing. I'm sure you all have been hearing it as well, most consistently. Yeah. It's worth diving, I think, into that one in particular to make it clear that when people are talking about defunding the police and raising, I think, a very legitimate question about whether the way in which we have approached public safety and made guys running around with guns as the only mechanism we have mm -hmm. for sort of addressing these things. I mean, I think it's really important to step back and just say, does that make any sense? You know, it's a survival strategy for the Black people who have been calling for it, because let's name a few of the instances where unarmed uh, Black people have been killed by police. You know, noise complaints. Hey, police, can you come check on my neighbor? I haven't heard from them in a while. Uh, traffic stops. These are all things that don't require someone with a gun to show up to do. We, when people say defund police, they're not saying promote lawlessness and eliminate accountability. They're saying our current system is fundamentally flawed. Let's rethink public safety altogether in one that is rooted in community-based solutions and economic justice and really meeting the challenges that we see with responses that are tailored to those needs rather than, than this one-size-fits-all somebody with a gun show up. Right. And of course, the cycle of poverty that generates so much of these challenges is the cause of them. And, and, you know, like people think it's a really complicated thing to solve that. It's really not. It's super simple. Right. Just require companies to pay people enough so they can live in security and dignity. And then you don't need so many police, right? Like it's true. super simple. True. Economic justice is a huge, huge part of this. We're seeing a, a country where uh, people are working harder, getting less out of it. Um, and that's a huge part of it. Right. Gurmai, one of the things that 
people have been talking a lot about is the difference between this continuum of reform and defunding and abolition. Can you talk a little bit about you know, what you might say to people who are arguing that reform will still solve all of the problems of the police force and maybe, you know, what in this pledge is more reform oriented versus versus defunding and fundamental transformation? Yeah, this is a conflict that I feel all the time. I absolutely want a transformational change. And that's what my constituents and so many people around the country have been asking for. And that's what I'm going to keep fighting for. At the same time, when you're a council member, you're uh, one of nine, so you need votes to do transformational change. And in the meantime, if you don't have those votes, I think it's also important to simultaneously fight for the reforms that are going to, I believe, save lives and hold people accountable in the short term. So that's why some of my pledges are some of the more incremental reform strategies. You know, just recently we introduced legislation. Prime sponsor was uh, council member Rod Dembowski and I co-sponsored along with some of my colleagues. We introduced legislation to give our oversight, uh, law enforcement oversight board, a subpoena power, which would actually give them the proper investigative power to hold people accountable rather than allowing you know, just internal investigations where there are conflicts of interest abound. Something like that is definitely and an, one of these incremental reform changes. At the same time, it's something that we can do right now and pass immediately. And that I think is a good thing without losing sight of the bigger goals that we have to keep fighting for. One of the things that strikes me in the defunding conversation is that embedded in it is this really hopeful sense that budgets are reflections of our values and that police budget should reflect our values around, you know, helping people and providing the things that people need to thrive as opposed to those things that endanger and harm people. Can you talk a little bit about what redirecting police department funding might look like? I'll give you one specific example. We have a, a fund called the Mental Illness and Drug Dependency fund here in King County. And this is a fund that goes to support programs like mental health crisis officers who are able to, you know, provide the support that people in crisis need. That fund is tied to a very volatile revenue source in sales tax. COVID-19 comes through, people are not out shopping and spending money anymore. That sales tax revenue plummets. Now that fund the mental health and uh, drug dependency fund plummets as well suddenly we don't have the support we need for our neighbors who are in crisis what happens to public safety what happens to those individuals that need support when nick was talking about fixing our tax structure that is directly directly connected to public safety so when people say redirect funding or or defund the police however you want to phrase it they're saying our current systems, our current funding systems are broken and don't keep people safe. If we're able to fund those properly and not rely on police for people who are going through a mental health crisis, that would be good for everybody. Our local and county and state budgets are massively skewed towards police and quote unquote safety, as opposed to those things that really allow people to thrive and be healthy, you know, health and human services, education, early learning, 
all of that kind of thing. And it, it strikes me that, again, to the extent that a budget is really an explanation of what we believe and value, I would bet a lot of people don't think our budgets as they're currently construed reflect our, our values. I will tell you, Justin, that of King County's general fund, which is multiple billions of dollars, 72% of that goes to our, our criminal legal systems. So almost three quarters to our criminal legal systems, which, as you know, is law enforcement, jails, courts. Yeah. So that's just astounding, that number. That's really astounding, 72%. Yeah. I, you know, just for purposes of argument, if King County is spending the same amount as SBD and you halved the amount that we currently spend on sort of conventional policing and took the other $400 million and funneled it into, imagine it you know, a new force of people who, who were social workers and healthcare mm -hmm. workers and, and mediators and who, whoever, you know, like a, a team of people who, who are much better trained to deescalate these problems and to provide right. services to the folks that they encounter rather than just busting them and throwing them in jail. Absolutely. It's hard to believe that that wouldn't work better. Right. <laughs> I guess, you know, I, I definitely think that it's worth a try. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the the housing providers will also tell you that once you provide permanent, stable, safe housing for people, all those other issues almost go away on their own. Right. You know, as we're talking about redirecting and and defunding and and investing in these things that create healthy, thriving communities, it really makes me pause and consider how much this particular fight gets at the heart of money and power in our system and, you know, this 400-year-old arrangement that is deeply racist. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about how you see this fight unfolding and some of the broad players and what needs to happen to really get to a place where the way we invest in our communities reflects our values? First of all, I had an interview last week where somebody asked me, what makes you hopeful? And what makes me hopeful is all of the people who are taking to the street right now. You know, I grew up in South Seattle and this past weekend, the organizers who organized the South Seattle March for Black Lives, that was one of the most beautiful sights I've ever seen. I was in Othello Park in South Seattle, seeing what felt like 10,000 people in one place in the park, all raising their solidarity fists, their black power fists together, shouting Black Lives Matter. I think that's how change is created when tens of thousands or even millions across the country stand up and say, this is unacceptable. We need a new way of doing things and holding all of their elected officials accountable to that. And the things that we thought could never happen are starting to happen right now. I'm sure you both are aware of uh, what happened in Minneapolis City Council, where the uh, veto-proof majority said they are going to completely move away from their current system of policing to a new system of public safety. That is almost unheard of. It's it's un so many people couldn't even fathom that happening in a major city like Minneapolis. And now that there's precedent for that, it's not just going to be some pie in the sky dream. 
but something that's actually possible. And that's possible because of all the organizers, all the protesters, all the young people around the country saying that there's a better way of doing this. So let's talk for a minute about accountability, because I think that that's another really, really important part of all of this. And you may recall that we were pretty deeply involved in the uh, de-escalate campaign last year, which lowered the legal threshold required to charge and convict a police officer. But I think we need to go so much farther. And, you know, as pro-union as I am, that it cannot escape even the most progressive person that the police unions have not been the friend of <laughs> progressive reform in no, this way. And the police obviously have a very hard job, but they should be held to a higher standard than ordinary citizens in terms of the use of force, not a lower standard. Like I can't go out and whack a person and be like, well, you know, I was scared. <laughs> yeah. Germay, is there anything that um, you didn't get a chance to say or something that we should be thinking about over these next few weeks, like what folks like us can be doing and, and people who are listening? I think holding uh, elected officials accountable to a specific plan is really important. Whenever really terrible things like this happen, like the murder of George Floyd or whatever it might be, you get a lot of elected officials who make value statements and say, I care about this or this is bad, but they need to be pressed to provide their plan. And the more people invite them to Zoom panels and interviews and news reporters ask them the tough questions, the better we'll be able to hear what they're actually going to do. And I think that's the the best way that we can hold people accountable to uh, a roadmap to justice. So I, I think you two in particular, Justin and Nick, you have really powerful platform. You're very well respected. Um, the more you can ask that of our leaders, the the better I think we'll all be. And that's not to say that there haven't been several elected officials who uh, have not been providing plans. Several of them are, have been great, uh, but not everyone has. And uh, I think that would be a great use of your influence. And I know you already have been doing that. Message received. Thank you so much, Gurmai, for your time. This has really, really been a half hour well spent, and we really appreciate everything you're yeah. doing. Yeah, It was great. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to joining you again in the future. Yeah, thanks so much. All right, bye-bye. So, Jessen, we like to think of Washington State as a pretty progressive place, but our criminal justice approach isn't anything that you could be super proud of. King County, of course, which is where Seattle sits, one of the most politically liberal places in the country, 72% of the budget, and this was something that Germay shared with us, is spent on justice and safety and health, you know, in quotes, justice and safety in quotes, and health and human services only has 5%. Yeah, and one of the consequences of that is that only seven countries in the world have a higher incarceration rate than Washington State, which is, you know, nothing to be too proud of. Right. And and as a consequence, you have these outcomes for people, Black people in our community that are terrible and harmful and dangerous. So it was really great to get Germaya's perspective on where do we go from here, including demilitarizing the police 
and, you know, continuing to restrict use of deadly force by the police, but it has to be a lot more than that. And he's talking about pretty big changes around that funding and redirecting it to to other things. I'm a huge fan of demilitarizing uh, the police force. Uh, I just find living in a society where you've got all of these people with all these military grade weapons and armored personnel carriers. And, you know, it's just, it is not healthy at all. And step one is taking all that nonsense away from police departments. And, uh, you know, not only is it morally wrong and dangerous for the community to have an, a militarized police force, but it costs a lot. You have to store it. Right. You have to replace it. You have to get people trained on it. And, you know, so as we're really having this conversation around whether our budgets match our values, it seems like that one is certainly low-hanging fruit. But there are a lot of other budget choices that we make around police departments that that don't match our values either. One of the things I've been thinking a little bit about is we have a lot of mechanisms for instituting budget accountability in government. For example, we performance audit our transit agencies and we you know we have our homelessness providers uh, their contracts are scrutinized and they're required to to show us that their outcomes are in keeping with what what we wanted them to be doing and we don't ask our police departments to do that, you know. And so what is so inspiring about this moment is activists through years and years of organizing are really forcing that conversation into the fore. And it's this moment where we could really see big change. Yeah. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation and a long time coming. And uh, it will be really interesting to see how things unfold. But for sure, Jessen, uh, I think we need to take very seriously the idea of pressing our elected leaders to put their to put action where their mouths are however you however you want to put it we need to go beyond tweeting to putting real serious pressure on the people we've elected to make the substantive changes to policy that will make the world a better place Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.